<laughs> so, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like put fucking big words in this shit. <laughs> uh, welcome to Mountain Horse Studios. This is episode two. I'm here with David Truss, um, educator from uh, Park Coquitlam, and we're going to be uh, talking about abundancy. You hear us talking about abundancy a little bit in Mountain Horse Studios. We've written a few articles, and uh, it uh, is one of the foundations of our models of competition and what leadership looks like. And uh, just speaking briefly, Dave, you, you brought something up that I didn't quite understand, and it was something around constraints of of abundance, or can you explain it? Well, I, th I think we should talk a little bit about the difference between uh, living in a world of abundance versus scarcity first, but th the idea that we can talk about later is, I think creativity requires some constraints, and in a world of abundance we can often be distracted by so many things that we we don't have the limitations of constraint that help invite creativity. But I think we can talk first a little bit about what do you mean by abundance versus scarcity? Well, for me, uh, uh, the first time I came about uh, abundancy theory was, and I can't remember the work, but it was uh, some of the guys working on <clears throat> character characteristics that bring about flow uh, <clears throat> and, and flow dynamics uh, behaviorally, uh, meaning that uh, you're in a current state of present awareness functioning on all cylinders um, and tackling uh, in real-time problems. Um, as you're opposed to it. So mountain climbing is uh, an excellent example of, uh, um, of uh, an extreme sport where flow state is created quite often by the practitioners that have been doing it for a while, um, simply for the fact that um, there's a spank factor to it. But um, so if a flow comes from abundancy and having the resources to, to, uh, to deal with problems in real time, um, what is abundancy? And when I read uh, some of the work, and I wish I knew the guy's name, is <clears throat> I thought it was kind of flaky. It was kind of a belief, uh, a utopian belief that the world was uh, forever prosperous and there's more than enough food and resources for all of us. And I was thinking, well, that's not really the case. You know, that's, that's not practical. Um, and then I spent some time uh, down at the ranch last year and, and watching a herd. And I know some characteristics within the herd. Um, and abundancy to me in nature is this concept that nature is always thriving. And that abundancy, um, there's two characteristics of competition. And there's competition under abundancy and there's competition under scarcity. Uh, abundancy, when you reflect in nature, and <clears throat> caused me to kind of get in more and more, was the fact that um, in nature we don't <clears throat> really see sick animals and we don't really see... Um, a decaying environment where life is actually diminishing. Um, they may be circumstances where um, temporarily uh, life is, is, is faced with scarcity, but over time, if you watch nature, it doesn't matter if we cut down a forest or, or if we leave abandon a city, it, it quickly returns to um, abundance uh, as far as life goes. Um, life moves in very quickly over the cement and recaptures it. So it made me think that somehow life is abundant and somehow life feeding off of life creates more net life than than was originally um, started with and I'm not sure how that happens but I think it, it, it raises some interesting um, ideas around what competition looks like and leadership looks under under both scarcity and abundancy 
So, so you're looking at it two, uh, on, on two different levels, and I think the first level is the idea of not just, like, there's an, an individual animal might experience scarcity, but you're talking about nature in itself. And the, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so I, then the second level is around humans and what they do and where we are? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think it, it applies to both of us. Um, I, I think with scarcity is this belief that um, the resources to support life and a health, healthy, active, uh, prosperous life are scarce. And therefore, we have to go about hoarding, um, whether it be time, resources, money, things that will help guarantee uh, future success based on the scarcity that we're feeling now. And it led me to think that perhaps um, what we deem as wealth in our society is really just competition under a scarce environment. For instance, in wild... Or, or perception of scarcity. Yeah, perception of scarcity, because uh, I think a lot of the scarcity is created in our mind. It's not a reality, mm -hmm. right? We, most of us, most of us um, have satisfied the need for food, shelter, um, some sort of companionship, and the necessi necessities of life. Um, however, scarcity um, it shows itself in our lack of time, um, the pressures of our bill, the bills to be paid, not enough resources, not enough mental resources to, cap uh, to, to accomplish the tasks at hand, not enough resources as far as money and so on. Um, and I think they drive us to the same characteristics we see in nature when food becomes scarce. Um, or safety becomes scarce because of predation. And uh, particularly when food's scarce and uh, the, the uh, mechanisms to support life, um, what I've seen in herd animals is that uh, um, competition becomes extremely aggressive and that um, the dominance hierarchy solidifies almost in gangs. And these gangs will go about hoarding food in order to protect uh, um, their gene survival um, and the weak are left to fend for themselves and often in the fringes of trying to um, uh, make things w work and often end in despair. So can you give me an example of somewhere where you see that in, uh, you know, in today's world? Uh, at an animal level or? Human level. Oh, human level? Um, I think all of us. Uh, we are... Um, you know, I think alphas naturally, um, under conditions of scarcity, band together, they create tight groups, and they compete against their own species um, or their own community, let's say. Because mm -hmm. I think species naturally, there's natural competition. It's like not that, I don't feel that, this is a little bit of a slippery slope, but um, I don't feel that competition non-existent in areas of abundancy. But it's not to the d degree and intensity that it is when in, under scarcity. And what I see in scarcity for us um, is that when we're overtaxed, and we'll get into pressure and release, which I think you and I have chatted about in private before. But when we're overtaxed and there's so much pressure bearing down on us continuously, um, and we feel we are scarce on the resources to accomplish uh, resolving that pressure, having some type of a release from that pressure, uh, we never have that release. Um, we are continuously feeling we are scarce on resources, and then uh, continual exposure to that pressure leaves us feeling anxiety, um, angry, um, depressed. Mm -hmm. And often, many people um, that I see, and I see a lot of young people in the service industry, um, 
and it, it, and it definitely follows social economic demographics, depending on what neighborhoods you are in. Um, I see a lot of young people in the service industry with a lot of apathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we see it in our families, um, uh, the lack of time and resources to give to children. Um, I think we see it in our corporations, um, this, the, the feeling that everything is comp- hyper-competitive, um, and everything's been monetized, that uh, we drive the limited resources, what we believe the limited resources in the corporation, um, towards more and more output, um, and that's more and more stress, and that's leading to some of the breakdowns that we're seeing in society. Mm. Yeah, w- when you're talking about the, the, the socioeconomic differences and so on, I, I just... I don't. I don't want to have a conversation about politics, but just the, the divide in the U.S. right now after the election of Trump. I, I just look at that and I say, no matter how you look at it, there's there's a building of tribes and people feeling like there's you know scarce funds to do things with, and and so um, it's almost like there's this because of the divide. There's al- there's almost this uh, sense of scarcity that puts people in a panic mode that makes them almost incapable to sort of talk between the two different sides. Yeah, and it seems that, you know, the community, whether that be a herd or um, a social group with humans, um, under scarcity is that 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 community breaks down. It's not only the community, the tribe, fighting perhaps against another tribe um, for lack of resources or competition to move into new um, areas that may provide greater opportunity because of food or, or uh, living conditions. Um, but um, where was I going on with that? I said it kind of went off on a tangent. I again. don't know, but I have a, a, que- a side question okay, for you. Okay, go ahead. So uh, we, we're talking about humans, but you mentioned the herd. So um, what do you see and think we can learn from, you know, looking at a herd of horses in uh, the contrast between abundance and scarcity? Okay, so um, I think the fundamental difference between um, an environment perceived real or other or let's yeah perceived real or other um, under a scarcity um, uh, things are are in decline um, there's not enough for all of us and therefore I will hoard in order to help ensure my future and by hoarding that means that others will not be supported I don't think aggressive competition is wrong, and this is this is kind of the fundamental belief that's arising, is that um, our, our hyper-competitiveness and our hyper-aggression in our society, I think it's natural. I, and I think that's part of the problem is because it's natural under conditions of scarcity. It makes sense that if things are really scarce, the strongest genes need to survive and help to guarantee the species further survival. and return to thrival from that survival mechanism under scarcity back to thriving. Eventually it seems that nature always returns to abundance. It always reflourishes, replenishes. So with animals, um, we get to see um, what, say in a herd dynamic, what um, if they're well fed and they have plenty of room to forage and play and and, uh, you know, we replicate as much of the conditions in the wild as we can, um, then we see far more cooperation and less hierarchical rigid structures in the, the alpha matrix, so to speak. Um, what you do see is a lot more cooperation and a lot more movement 
of alphas in the herd to stabilize almost the emotional um, energy of the herd, that, that the conflicts are reduced. It's the inter interest of the alpha, um, um, probably biologically, uh, to to maintain the stability of the herd because that will help its success. A, a frantic herd by, led by a frantic individual um, is going to be less successful than a grounded individual um, leading a herd. Um, and that's why I think we look for, we universally, I think all animals recognize quiet confidence because it's a um, identifier of high level of skill sets and identifier of a potential leader. And so when we see that and that they're calm, cool, they must have something that we don't know because we don't feel that way and we want to resonate with them. So we're attra attractor neurons, so to speak, um, um, resonate to that, that vibration and we naturally seek that leadership, all of us. You know, I would love to have more leaders in my life that could give me more and more direction to an environment that perhaps I'm not seeing. And so I think um, what we can learn is what competition looks like um, under um, conditions of abundance. Compare that with scarcity and, and maybe rethink how we're living. Because I think it's largely a concept of what we're being faced with right now and not based on the reality of, of physical scarcity. And that's an interesting thing. You're, you're not saying get rid of competition. You're saying look at what healthy competition looks like in a, in a world that's abundant versus unhealthy in a world of scarcity. Yeah, and, and, and there's still competition in both environments, but um, so... I, I see that a lot where there's a, there's a, there's a push really to, to take um, a lot of competition out of schools. Yes. And, and I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best thing. I think that it's great to have, you know, one of the highlights this year is going to uh, an entrepreneurship sort of, uh, we have like this course where students do um, like Dragon's Den pitches to uh, university profs and uh, um, and business people in the uh, um, the successful business people in in Vancouver area, and watching that competition is it's it's amazing to watch these kids step up, and it's it's healthy and um, and I think that that's one of the things that oftentimes we we forget that that not everything has to be torn down so that it's not competitive. Uh, I think boys by nature. Uh, and I, I, I'm specifically going to a gender line because I think that oftentimes our, our school is designed around um, when things look pretty, they end up getting better marks, um, mm. you know, and they have a presentation and a, and a thing that appeal more to the ability of girls to, to meet them where um, when you take the competition out, um, the worthiness to some to some boys is, is, well, why should I even bother? Yeah. Yeah, and, and like, do you find this in school, and I'm just thinking as you're saying that, that w what may be apparent in competition under abundance is far more cooperation. I was thinking about people, yes. I was thinking about kiteboarding, and I think about any l high level sport where it's just starting to get ground. So there's a, a strong interest to create community and pull new members in. And the competition under abundant situations is more than enough for all of us. Yes. You know, in the kiteboarding world, originally when we were old timers and there was anyone, no one else in the, the water, we were very receptive to new people. Um, and we also competed, but it was encourage our, 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 our um, colleagues um, to do better. Um, there was some ego to it for sure, but that was kind of the play. Mm -hmm. And what was unique about it is that 
despite the competition, often the better competitor would reach out to the lesser competitor and share all his experiences. Say, oh, this is how you get this. That, that's, yeah, and that's, a, that's a true leader to me. So it's a generosity that comes with, with that abundance. Uh, yeah, you, know, he, uh, you reminded me of a, I, I used to do this uh, in science, this egg drop competition where they had to create um, something. I, I, I would go up on the roof of the school and drop um, their egg encased in something to, to protect it. Oh yeah, and I um, this. but what what I did was I would start it with an auction, and so they actually had to a certain amount of money and uh, uh, fake money, and then they had to you know they all brought different things that they could use, but then that went into a common pool, and then it was auctioned off to see what, uh, you know um, who got what resources. So th there was an inequity of resources. Uh, Not oh, like everybody wow. got the same thing. They yeah. they actually had to you know, and so um, just. What what I noticed would happen is is there'd be a subculture after after afterwards um, you know after the um, auction was finished um, there started to become this cooperation where people realize well we don't have everything we need and going around and doing some some side trades after after the fact and I think that that has that in itself is uh, you know you're you're giving up resources knowing that it's going to help the other group. Yes, but you still know that it's a mutual benefit there, and and that that kind of cooperation comes out of the competition. Yes, and I think uh, you know that's an interesting point because I think it aligns it to, well, I, you know, I'm a competitor with you, and we're under, let's just say it's kiteboarding, and today, I'm slightly better than you, and then I share the reasons why. Why do I share it? Because I want you to get better, so you challenge me yes. back. Yeah. You know, I want to see you do well because then I have another measure of like, that was fun. Okay, you did that. That's cool. How'd you do that? Okay, I got it. Let's, I'm going to try this and then I'll try to one up you. And it's really this playful exchange to better each other and better the community at large. And, you know, I don't think we'll ever be absent of ego, but it definitely dampens down the ego's um, belief in scarcity in the world, right? It's a, a mutual cooperation and effort to compete and get better for the benefit of the entire community. Now, what I did know, as opposed to a mutually assured destruction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I think we get into, you know, just <laughs> just blow the whole thing up attitude, which I think a lot of people are with society right now. Yeah. Um, and, and when there's a lack of healthy competition, sometimes there's sabotage. Um, yeah. you know, where, where it's like, well, I don't want to do this, you know, uh, yeah. because it doesn't have the, the, the drive and the incentive. And, and that's where you, you know, you were asking me about creative constraints as we talked about this. And I, I think, yeah. I think we have to watch out sometimes because w we, we bring people up in a environment that's, that there's tons of abundance. I mean, uh, when just think back of maybe a hundred years ago. Um, you know, students had hours of chores before they'd even head to school. Um, they they actually were part of the decision making around uh, uh, preparing food or, um, you know, feeding the livestock, doing the different things where they had this awareness. Nowadays, uh, you know, kids are fed, watered, taken care of. That they have all these support systems, and where they find challenge is being absorbed in video games because you know that that provides a challenge that we don't necessarily offer anywhere else so so things like that become a distraction um and i think that creativity requires some constraints hmm. when 
you know, you, you've you've endeavored into to spending a lot of time focusing on uh, on a new direction for for your future um, around Mo Mountain Horror Studios, and and you yourself say you, you have to set things up where you know you're going to go somewhere and you're going to put the time in to to be. Oh, creative. I see what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. You need to actually. I would yeah that the you're almost putting constraints or pressure yeah to narrow the focus down into a set point that you yeah. need to, to be there right so you put is that what you're referring yeah, to like, is it kind of like squeezing it in and pushing it forward yeah yeah well exactly like a, a perfect example is sometimes you want to do something you want to do something and you don't do it then you start telling your friends and you start saying you know this is what I'm going to do and this is what I want to achieve now you have a a constraint where it's like well a pressure a social pressure that you've created for yourself where it's like I told these guys I was gonna do this you know yeah. I start looking like an idiot if I don't and and that constraint is a self-imposed constraint right? yeah uh, Tim Ferriss talks about actually having bets with people you know um, where you know you're gonna lose money if you don't get the thing done yeah that that, that can help invite a, a creative constraint that uh, that is a creative constraint that can invite you to actually focus and have the time to be creative. Yeah, I agree. I, and, and I would caveat with the fact that although within, say, saying something, not to say that we often say something uh, that we're going to do it as, act, as an act of creation, but we have to kind of watch those words because sometimes we we say things but then we feel okay that we said it and discussed it and then we just never do it yeah and, um, but and that's, that's, that's separate, that's separate. But no but that's where that's where putting placing a bet or you know oh. writing it publicly or there's doing a spank? something there's yeah, a, yeah there's a spank factor yeah. to not achieving it yeah, yeah i you, believe that you know you, you started talking about flow at the beginning of this and uh, I, I always get his name wrong but mahaley sinks and mahaley is the uh, name of the uh, author of that and if you just um, if you just look at flow theory and then uh, Google it and, t and then um, flow theory chart, what you'll see is a chart that talks about challenge and skill level, yeah. right? And so uh, uh, just, just very briefly, if both the challenge and the skill level are low, then you're in a place of apathy, right? Mm. Why, why bother? I don't have the skill to do it and it's too hard. Yeah. Um, if you are, have an extremely high challenge but low skill, well, now that builds anxiety. You, you, the yeah. challenge is there and you want to do it, yeah. but man, it's just too hard. Uh, on the other side, the skill could be really high, but the challenge is low, and that's sort of relaxation. Like, yeah. I can do it, but I don't have to work hard because I've got all the skills and there's no challenge. Yes. That flow requires some constraint. Y you have the skill, but the challenge is also high. Yeah, and, when and it's you, in the... Yeah, it's a sweet spot. Yeah. And it's that uh, gray area that that um, you're just stepping s just outside of your skill set comfort zone, and hitting that zone of uncomfortability where you're where you're challenged. And if you attach a spank factor, meaning some type of penalty, penalty, especially if it requires a great deal of awareness, like mountain climbing or kiteboarding, is if you screw up, it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't want to screw up. You do screw up, but um, the spank factor teaches you the lesson very, very, very quickly, and um, it's received uh, with intent because of the pain, the spank that goes along with it. Um, you want to try to to to, to reduce those. So I, I get I, what you're saying now. Yeah. I, but I think I think where that goes back to the idea of abundance versus scarcity is, if you're living in a scarce world, a scarce environment. Yeah. Um, 
there's limited time for um, using the skills that you have uh, for seeking the challenges that are truly challenging because you're just working to, to do what you need to do. Mm. But on the other side, in a world of abundance where we have so many choices and so many things we can do, you almost need to have some focus to figure out, well, uh, you know, you're calling it the spank factor, but some sort of constraint or something to hold you to... Accountable. To, accountable to be able to, to do the things. Because in an abundant world, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to be apathetic, I think. Oh, yeah. um, you know, if you don't if you don't see the challenges, um, you know, I, food comes easily to me. You know, um, yeah, I, so, I can be entertained without having to do much effort. So, so now, so the, yeah, exactly. So, so the apathy. I think once everything's reset, and we won't go into the limited resonance and regulation and so on, um, and, uh, just so we don't confuse the factor, but. Um, under those limiting factors, um, um, the abundancy, I've lost my train of thought. I, you know, I'm terrible at this freaking, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to, to tr- try to deepen, um, uh, maybe the, 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 the color of the story. Yeah. And I go it's so far on a tangent, I can't pull it back, but, well, yeah. uh, um, oh, but one thing you, I did, you went to, ap- you went to apathy was what you were. Oh yeah. About. Oh, sorry. Thank you so much. Um, so apathy is, is, you know, like, so if everything's for there for you, why do anything? Yeah. Um, one of the, that gets into curiosity. So uh, curiosity seems to be, to me, um, a natural state of awareness um, as it looks to explore its environment. And so, you know, competition, high, uh, rigid competition makes a lot of sense to me under f- scarcity. Um, it doesn't under abundance. And if we accept the principle that nature is based on abundance, not scarcity, and we can verify that in our own experiences, you can just go out and look at nature, yeah. go in your backyard, well, you know, mow the lawn down, and what happens? It grows. Yeah. Everything grows and returns. We, we've had major ice ages, and things bloom afterwards, right? So, yeah. I mean, for thousands of years, there, there's been times of true scarcity, um, but, but, it, but things come back yeah, and revive. And in a relative term, it's only short, even if it's decades, hundreds yeah. of years. But in the history of the world, according to, you know, like if meteor hits the planet, we quickly recover in, yes. in geological terms, yes. quickly. Um, so under the um, uh, scarcity model, um, we're into survival. Under an abundancy model, well, we have time. So how do we thrive? I think that's the nature of curiosity. It's to help us thrive, to learn to move into unexplored territories where we might find new opportunities to expand and grow and, and, uh, and change and adapt um, and some support more community, support more life. Um, so I, th- I think that's been, I, I have a curiosity about curiosity for the fact that, is that, is that, like, so if we're abundant, and where, where's curiosity coming from, and what's well, the evolutionary need for curiosity, I think I just touched on it, but I don't know for sure, but uh, that's my, my area of interest, I think, right now. So bring it to a, a, a business model, you're in a, a business where financial times are tough, all you're doing is focusing on the next dollar and, and protection and well, um, I th- yes. um, whereas uh, you know a, a company like Google where where they've they've thrived they're the ones coming up with things like 20 percent 20 percent time to to do your own creative projects as part of your 
your, your work week. Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and there's so many side projects that have come out of uh, their ability to provide uh, amazing and profitable side, pro- side sort of uh, projects where people have been able to say, this is what I think would be really interesting to explore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's curiosity. So they're making yeah. money. They're profiting off of other people's curiosity by creating an abundance of time mm-hmm. for people to explore their own curiosity, which ends up in profitable products and services for the company. Yeah. Um, so it does seem to make sense, even that example. Um, you know, to reflect back on abundancy with kiteboarding is when the water was open and there was like six or 12 of us on the water at any point in time and another 20 and maybe on the beach. We all supported each other. We all cheered each other. Someone new came up, knew nothing about kiteboarding. We were saying, oh, God, dude, you got to get into this. This is the craziest, funnest sports ever. And we would be encouraging and nurturing and trying to pull them in because it was all abundant. There was more than enough room for us in this new space, this new play space. And then over the years, as it became popular, um, and it took some time because, like most... um, uh, adventure, uh, extreme, sports. extreme sports. There's a risk factor to it that generally tends to keep out the majority of the general public for a while until the equipment becomes safe enough that the general public start to move in. And when I did, the resources actually became scarce. Um, the ability to set up your kite on the beach, um, the ability to have enough uh, room on the water to do the tricks that you're used to doing, and that scarcity created competition in the group and all of a sudden the aggression and the hyper masculinity or I shouldn't even say masculinity I say the hyper hyper aggression um, hyper anxiety and just a disconnect and a lack of community um, became apparent and we all went back to individuals fighting for our own space just like in society and it seems to happen everywhere I see it in nature uh, I see it watching the herd if it's scarce on food and I see it um, every aspect of our life as soon as scarcity moves in uh, you know we're dicks we're, we're there to compete <laughs> we're, we're there to compete to get our genes forward yeah. um, but that doesn't that's not our world so how do you uh, like how, how would you create an environment of abundancy in the classroom how, how, how could that be created or could it can it or is it a social issue well one of the things we do at Inquiry Hub in, in Coquitlam is uh We've, we've sort of deconstructed what the school day looks like. And so uh, in most schools uh, for high school, whether it's uh, semestered or year-long, you're essentially going to usually about four blocks, occasionally five, but let's just say four blocks of class, somewhere between 60 and 75 minutes every day. Yeah. And that's your day. Yeah, basically, um, you know, there, there's some good school programs that use those schedules but really what it comes down to is you're, hoar- you're herding kids from one class to another with a small break in between yes. and that the, there can be amazing dynamic teachers they have this 70 minute block that they're locked into and everything they do with the kid has to be done with that and the, the moment the, the, the you know 10 minutes before the, the class is over, no matter how amazing the project is, you're cleaning everything up and you're, yeah. you know. And so you have these constraints that I, I think are actually limiting. Um, so what we've done is 50% of a student's day is actually not in class. So we do that by having teachers integrate some courses together, but then also um, they only meet the students uh, two or sometimes three times a week. Um, 
The rest of the time, um, students have some online components. They're working on projects that the, the teachers actually give because there's a fair bit of curriculum that you have to get through. Yeah. Or they're working on projects of their own passion and interest. Mm. And so what we've done is we've created an opportunity for students to be creative and to follow their passions inside the school day instead of it being something that they have to wait until they get out of school and finish their homework to be able to do. Yeah. So, so and, and appropriately named, it's your school is called Inquiry Hub. Yes. And um, inquiry and curiosity seem to be two hands that shake <laughs> yeah, together. You yeah. Yeah. And, and and where my interest and bias in having this conversation about abundance and scarcity go towards those creative constraints um, is this year uh, our grade nines just were far and above. Um, more prepared to do inquiries than, than they have been in the past. And we saw some really neat projects, and we started to give the, the grade nines far more freedom than we did before. But I, I saw three of our top students kind of reach a point around uh, March, April, where they floundered a bit. Hmm. And they just had, it's like th they had interests, but they just didn't have that direction to help kind of focus it in that constraint, you know. And, and so um, started. It, thinking about well what, what do we what do we do to put you know and it doesn't have to be competition but something like competition in the sense of some sort of constraints where you know there's there's whether it's time or a specific uh, project idea that seem to help students thrive right so a perfect example um, other than than time and competition well it was a bit of a competition but our school district had a chance to put um, some uh, an experiment into space. Oh, and that's so, right. So all the students um, in the district, whoever, whichever science teacher wanted, could actually, um, you know, put something in space. And and my teacher was smart in that he realized, all right, any experiment anywhere can. It's just too much. It's just too wide of a. A project so he had them um, focus on the idea of composting and that was his focus now if a kid really wanted to go outside of that he'd let them but by focusing on that I mean if you think eventually people are going to be going to Mars and and garbage and composting might be something that could you know uh, be there's a lot of nutrients that can be gained in, in composting and mm -hmm. so um, understanding, you know, there, there are no natural um, composters up on Mars. So what do you bring up, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and what, what would work in zero gravity? And, and so he provided these constraints. Yes. Which actually now let the students, re you know, they could take it anywhere they wanted, but, but they had something to work on. Yeah. Now, now, we had, you know, we're a school of 60 kids and, and there were, almost 300 entries and we got a top eight and a top three Excellent. Uh, you know and the top three actually went to nasa and washington to be discussed as is that the one that's going to be from our fr from our district that's right? brilliant um and that's kind of cool that that a, a school of our size uh where only i think only about 30 half of our students you know 30 kids uh, out of 300 essentially uh in the competition and two of them get the top eight that's that's pretty neat that's wild. So it does seem like, would you think I'm correct if I reiterate what you said is that the constraints do, it focuses, it, it pushes to the sides um, and it never, like it almost it funnels um, people's, uh, what would you say, 
passion, interest into workable formats? Is that is that it, or is it something else? Uh, I, I think it goes back to it. It it actually um, encourages creativity. Right? Mm. So. Um, just just off the top of my head, we're talking about space. Uh, I can't remember which Apollo mission was the one where, uh, you know, they were they were going to run out of oxygen before they came back from from the moon, um, and they had to figure out how to how to fix that. And, and the you know, constraint was imposed by the the equipment. Yeah, and yeah. and 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 where I go with that is. If this wasn't a life and death situation where they had to deal with this, they probably, in a scenario practicing for something like this, would not have come up with the idea that they did. Oh, right? I see, yeah. because, but, but, you know, people's lives were at stake, and, and all of a sudden, just, and there was a time constraint. And so all of a sudden, you know, they came up with an ingenious way to recycle the oxygen um, using very limited resources of everything that was on the ship because they had no way of getting other things to them. Uh, so that's just that's a small example where I think um, if you didn't have those you know life and death constraints, then I'm not sure that the result would have would, would have been the been, same. Would have been the same. And so you know, in a, a method of of teaching perhaps is is in a playful way or a, a, a more controlled way of of, of adding life and death stra- uh, uh, life and death constraints um, that aren't really life and death, but mold and shape. Um, uh, a person's uh, focus into a, a, a very refined uh, um, spot where the solutions aren't obvious and that causes the creative process to try to work out. The, yeah, you, the you, conditions you. are so narrow now and there's no set solution to uh, resolve the pressure, in this case as you said, yeah. <laughs> air, um, that you have to get creative in order to um, help guarantee survival. So we're getting into this area, and this, this is what I'm proposing. Curiosity is, and you sent me that paper that I was delighted to figure, find out that not a scientist, really, they're, they're still puzzled from, from which, where does curiosity come from, and what is the purpose of curiosity. We understand where fear comes from. We understand the mechanisms within the brain. But there's been a little research on this curiosity, and I think you're pointing to things that 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 although within abundance, we actually have to narrow it almost to resolve um, sophisticated problems. Um, maybe the abundance—I'm not sure how. Like it, it, the abundance is there, but what we're doing is putting constraints, which is well, you can't have all of it. Yes. Because uh, maybe all of it isn't needed, and it's going to interfere with what you're looking to achieve if you if you give somebody everything yeah um then we paralysis by analysis because well, we don't um, or, like, or there's or, too many choices there's that choice theory right yeah. you give too many choices people get paralyzed if right. you give them fewer choices they can handle it and choose one or the other but even if they are choosing i think in, a, in an era of abundance they might just choose um entertainment yeah right like like there's no challenge that, because i have everything i need um, so and so so I mean, I mean I, so I that's that's why nature invented the predator, <laughs> 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 just to keep yeah. it a little challenging yeah. and things moving forward, maybe. Yeah. Well, uh, well, but but it's interesting because um, I I don't know enough about it, but but there's definitely considerable differences in thinking between 
someone, uh, an animal who is a, who is a predator versus an animal who lives as, as, as prey. Um, you know, there's a level of anxiety and, uh, you know, I don't know if it's scarcity or just survival that um, makes the mind go a little differently. And, 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 and maybe, maybe that's what the, the rat race is the, uh, that, that we live in, is the rat race is the, this idea that, you know, we, we're, we're in some ways the prey that always have to watch out and survive and do the bare minimum, you know, do, the, do well, whatever we need to, to survive. Whereas um, in abundance, you have the opportunities to be extremely creative, creative, but you also have the opportunities to say, I don't need to do anything. Um, yeah, and, and, and for some reason, and you know, that's the inquiry on this one, yeah. is like the curiosity seems to arise. Um, from where does it arise? I think it, it arises to help guarantee further... Um, thriving within the species um, I think it's the mechanism because if you're in under a scarcity you're not going to thrive so you so may but your community at large is not going to thrive um, so the ahead. word that comes to mind is need right so yeah. what, what are the needs in abundance if you don't need a lot then there's not a really a reason to be creative but if you find a need right and so yeah. you know yes, like for yes. you for you kiteboarding uh, feel the need of, of sort of an exhilaration <laughs> of uh Adrenaline, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, it it it, it, was it gave me a fix that you know I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, so yeah, it gave me my fix. I yeah. was happy with it. Yeah, and uh, and uh, you stayed with it long enough to get extremely competent. Now you don't do it as much. Uh, yeah. And oh, because it's not fulfilling. Yes, you do have something there because it's yeah. not fulfilling the same need. Yeah. My needs had changed because I had grown. Um, debatable <laughs> uh, as a person and then my needs had switched over to uh, horsemanship which it took up five years ago and because my needs were more about understanding leadership my needs were better understanding uh, communion about relationship um, and uh, these were challenges I was, I was faced at becoming a better horseman and, and a better person. And a better person. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I'm a better horseman, I definitely am a better person to everybody around me. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't always mean being nice. <laughs> you know, contributing to the community doesn't mean always being nice. Sometimes contributing to the community is, is being um, aggressive in certain ways. A correction. Because aggression, I think, is a, is, a, is a form of correction, right? It isn't a hostility to say you've done me wrong. It's really to establish boundaries. And, um, and, uh, and especially when boundaries are imposed upon from a negative or a, a, um, an untruth. Um, for a horse, for instance, um, under um, abundance, there's much more cooperation. Um, the alpha males or mares will often work in conjunction to stabilize. And one of the th strange things... So give me an example of what they do to stabilize. Well, okay, and I'll touch on just, you know, kind of a weird thing, but um, uh, there were uh, new members uh, to the herd. And never, anytime you bring in new horses, they have to acculmate. Um, and you actually have to keep them in separate pens. Uh, depending on, on the horses and, and how they're accumulating, they're all different, just like people. Some people socialize quite well and they figure things out and their tussles are short-lived. And others, there's more of uh, some problems. And it's usually in the problem of, of um, uh, animals that kept in isolation and 
you know, um, when they're kept in small paddocks, um, uh, uh, the worst thing for me to see is a horse by itself right. um, because it's an extremely lonely, depressed, and scared animal. Um, it just stands there so people don't think about it, but that animal's meant to be in a herd. Um, its limbic system is designed in conjunction with other animals, and it needs other animals in order to feel safe. Um, there's Which there's is a problem with some kennels in that they they put them into individual stalls all the, all day. Yeah, even like pack animals, wolves the same, and then with uh, herd animals, it's 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 the same thing. Is that they don't do well, and then when they're forced into social environments, it's no different than taking a kid out that um, had been home kept all most of his life. He was allowed to play outside, usually by himself. Um, maybe with another um, um, child that's kept under s uh, similar situations. And then, you know, 15 years later, the, they're sent off to high school. <laughs> um, it's not going to go well for them. They don't <laughs> have the social skills to figure it out. Yeah, and, no, so no, the and, and just to clarify, you're not talking to, like, like I've seen some, some really... Uh, stable and, and, and amazing homeschooled kids oh right? it's not but it's not a knock you're, against you're, homeschool you're, yeah, it's because, because that you know they they have their kids in community sports and so on yeah no you right? can but but you're talking about truly just isolating a kid where the, they don't have the, the the peer opportunities like you would a horse and then you expect to put them into a social situation and suddenly everything's exactly gonna be okay. exactly yeah. and and so um what you'll see is that the alphas, um, uh, in a funny situation, a friend was telling me that um, he was standing beside his horse and uh, he was the alpha. And, I, you know, the hierarchy isn't as rigid as we assume it is. Um, it becomes very rigid uh, under times of scarcity, but it isn't as rigid as, as uh, often we think it is um, in nature. It's much more fluid and um, there's much more cooperation going on. There is an alpha infrastructure but it's more dynamic than locked in uh, a rigid structure so how I would see is uh, <laughs> this will add something to the conversation a friend was telling me and this is like Jesus I was standing beside my horse and his horse happened to be uh, uh, the alpha in the herd the um, uh, uh, large mare um, large gelding that uh, um, really uh, was an exceptional animal exceptional horse and the person, the person was beside his horse telling me this story, and he says, you know, I just had a conversation with Nero. And with I said, your, with, your horse. With, with, his with, horse. with his horse. And we're looking at the mares fighting and out in the field. And we're both staring in the same direction. And he says, I looked, I looked at uh, Nero, and I said, geez, Nero, hey, bloody mares. Can you go over there and resolve it? Get that, that sorted out? And he said, I like he shook and says, you know, you wouldn't think, but like he just left and did exactly what I said. <laughs> and he, he just got in between them. He separated and disciplined a couple of young ones for, for being a little, um, weaky, let's say, uh, and then just kind of put his presence in the middle of it and everything settled out. Like yeah. he didn't even have to fight or do much, you know, there's a little bit of correction action, but he just kind of moved in and his presence alone. His command presence settled things out. Yeah. Um, so you, that's an example that comes to mind. Um, you know, just to touch off on, on st some of that stuff seems a little unbelievable, but I think they actually might be reading. So as we, if we look at the same thing, and I communicate in body gestures, mm -hmm. like I talk to you, and I said, like, geez, look at those mirrors. 
the cousin is so much trouble. The young ones over there, they're just being a bit bratty. Yeah, you got gestures. And so the horse picks up on all that. And so I think they get the gist of what we're saying. You know, they don't get the words, but just as if I had cut out the sound and you watch me, you could probably get an accurate representation of what I was trying to communicate. Yeah. I think they just pick up on that just the same way do we do. And, and, and that, bec- I think great horse trainers uh, yeah. look very magical for fa- that fact. And then James Allen is one friend that, that well, I, I've seen operate that way. And, and like it, it's so finesse that I think, well, let me, well, let me, let me bring like up magic. one, let me bring up one thing where, uh, um, I remember with being with you and watching the, the horses feed and, uh, what ended up happening was, uh, one of the, females that's low in the hierarchy was looking for a place to to eat and you know walked up to uh uh one of the lead horses and you said watch watch his ears and his ears kind of tilted back and he goes he's not letting her go near right and and we watched her kind of find because there were just there were certain bundles of hay and they were all being had horses and and i remember you saying now she's actually fr- good friends at, with this horse, and he might let let her in. Yeah. And she stood there, and then he said, "Yeah, you, you said it beforehand." He goes, "Yeah, the, watch his ears; they're not going back. He's he's given her permission." And then yeah. she came in. So I mean, you're you're reading exactly what the horse could read. Yeah. And so, um, y- you know, you're 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 recognizing gestures. Yeah. And and then and then you know, interpreting what a horse can do and, and what's to say a horse can't, you know, they're watching each other's gestures. What's to say they can't look at our gestures and, and figure things out as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and to that degree, I always, um, contemplated, um, what, um, the degree of pressure, um, that, that say horses put on each other, um, under abundant situation, the idea of don't touch my food or this is my food and you should be over there and there's a kind of a a, an organizational structure to the herd but the gestures aren't it's competitive yes but the gestures are soft it's like a head nod like move Mm -hmm. like get go go away it's not once things if say a new animal doesn't know that he's dealing with an alpha or wants to challenge the situation there's going to be an escalation right a correction to the younger animal as he finds out, unless he is truly the dominant one of the two. Uh, but generally, um, they'll get corrected quickly. And it's only a correction. I think we see aggression as um, harm. And I think we mistake it for anger. And I think aggression is a declaration of boundaries uh, and uh, an effort to protect those boundaries. Um, so, and I'll use this in subtle ways. One is that we can use it to protect our food, but also yeah. I might just have comfortable social boundaries where, where I, I don't like people in yeah. for whatever reason. So I see it with horses oh. is that I'll, 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 you know, it was the other day I was, I was talking with some guests and, um, we're chatting and, um, I didn't see, couldn't see what was behind me, but as they're chatting and I could see the front, the horse in front of me, I knew that. And I said to him, I says, oh, you know, so-and-so is pissed off at telling him to, hey, back off. Back off. I don't like you so close. And it was just a head nod, gesture. Yeah. Like, just, it, she was just declaring her boundaries. Yeah. But I just don't want you that close. Other horses, okay. Yeah. But uh, they, they definitely seem to declare boundaries and set those boundaries for so, comfort. So, yeah, and, and 
And so that's not aggression in the way that we interpret it. No, it's, it's a, it's not, I'm mad at you. Yeah. It's like, you're not, it's, she didn't, if she was mad, she would have turned and, and, um, um, and I, I hate to use the word mad cause I'm not sure horses actually get mad. They get aggressive. Um, um, that's, it's, it's, you know, the, the, we get into linguistics with madness and, and anger and aggression and how we accurately define them and i think for me i will define aggression as a corrective action a physical correction well not even physical it's a use use of pressure to correct an action use of pressure to correct an action so what i'm thinking of is um my experience uh playing water polo and i responded really well to a coach that was just directive even if it came off as angry like just you need to do this was like I, I got it. Whereas if it was flowery and you yeah. know, next time try, like by the time I get to next time, I'm I'm not remembering what what, yeah. <laughs> what the hell he said. But but um, in that environment where you know I'm in a safe place, um, you know I'm I'm not talking about the tyrant coach that tells you everything you've done is wrong. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about that aggressive. This is how you go about doing it. This is what needs to happen next. You mm-hmm. know, um, yeah, in, 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 in an environment where it's safe, that, you know, someone from the outside could look and go, you know, what an ass that guy is, right? So yeah. look how mean he is to his, his, uh, um, his players. But for me, in my experience, it, yeah. it wasn't aggression. Well, it lo- was just, you know, something coming out in an aggressive way. Yeah, and it may, it's, you know, I think we would have called it back then discipline, you know, um, uh, perhaps. Um, (laughs) Actually, I'll I'll give one more counter to that. Okay. uh, um, When I started coaching girls, I remember once I I pulled the girls in and I'm I'm coaching them uh, and they're in the pool and I'm telling them, you know, and then they go out and then, and then they they, they're just floundering and, and they come back in and it's like, I literally said, "What the hell's wrong?" Like, like they just were just underperforming, and and one of the girls goes, "We don't know why you're mad at me, uh, mad at us, right?" Yeah. And I went, and, and you know, I went, I'm not mad, right? <laughs> you know, and then and they said, "But you've got that angry crease between <laughs> between your eyes," and uh, and it was like I realized, well, they're you know, I, they're in the pool looking up at me, and I've got this scowl on, and then I'm you know, I'm projecting my voice loud and. And so the next time they come in at, at the at the end of next quarter, like I'm I'm stretching my forehead to get rid of the line, <laughs> and I'm like putting a smile on and going okay, and I'm still going with the same intensity. But yeah. I, you know, once they interpret it as anger, uh, I, I I couldn't coach them. Like I not only could I not coach them, but they were so upset they were underperforming. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think. Um, you know, I had a martial arts friend of mine uh, who has a karate or taekwondo school. Um, a friend of a friend, and um, I asked him, what, what's it like, you know, um, teaching discipline in, in, in a martial arts school now? Um, when I was a kid, and being much more older than him, um, I said, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was the reason you sent your kids to karate school, is to sh- teach them discipline. And he says, yeah, it's, they, they believe the same thing. They want them to learn discipline in karate, but they won't let me enforce it. <laughs> so he says, you know, if, if, and, and with children, it's quite apparent uh, you know, the, the parents, there's something different about our society. And he was saying that, you know, so they want, they, they bring their kids to, to martial arts school 
to, to learn wow. discipline. And then the kids act up. They, they can't focus, right? So I want to give them a skill set to be able to focus, to apply their attention to skill attainment. And so I have to correct them. And so I will discipline them. And that discipline is usual martial arts stuff. Um, it may be push-ups, okay? You know, step out of line or talking in, in line, 10 push-ups. Yeah. You know, doing something incorrectly or doing just, you know, 20 sit-ups, whatever. Um, and what would happen is that he would get a talking to from the parents. Wow. And that they would see that as aggressive. Mm. Um, uh, but not an aggressive, sorry, to, they would see that as a form of um, mistreatment of their children um, in a form of uncalled for aggression or aggression that is sometimes is going to harm their child and so they're trying to protect their child um and he was like he, he's just like i don't i don't understand they bring their children to class to learn discipline and they won't let me discipline them it's it's a, a strange world this is essentially like most of the classes are just babysitting classes because we can't teach anymore and he says, unfortunately, most of the money comes in. Like great, 60%, I think, of money from martial arts schools comes in from kids. They have to have a very strong kid program. Right. Um, but unfortunately, they're not learning martial arts like they used to because they can't discipline the way. And there needs to be a sense of respect um, for the, the head instructor. Here's an individual who has a great deal of skill, and you're looking to attain skill from him. How are you going to learn? You're going to have to pay attention. How are you going to pay attention? You're going to do what he tells you to do. And, you know, it's just, it's a strange world. You described a two and a half hour workout under you and <laughs> the university. <laughs> <laughs> the entire thing from start to finish was push us to the extent that our bodies would l allow you to push us and then see if you can get 10% more. But interesting, right? So that would be, aggra I was aggressive in those, were. those classes, you but were. it was nothing about anger. It was no. about let's, let's, let's just rock this program. Yeah, yeah you're, it was like, you know, I, I remember... I remember one day, terrible 200 Tuesday. <laughs> oh, yeah, 200 Tuesdays. <laughs> Where it was like... Uh, I haven't done that in a long time. Good heavens, by the time... I just remember doing punches after two hours and watching my hands go in slow motion and you're yelling faster. And I, I can't make my arms go any faster because they've just been worked to absolute exhaustion. And yet, you know, um, competitive environment. I grew up with that old school, traditional yeah. background. Uh, but I would I would be hard pressed to anyone say that Jack's a mean teacher. No, no. But I'm awesome. an aggressive teacher. Yeah. But I'm not mean. Yeah. I don't think I'm mean. And, and, <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, there were a few days where you knew we were hungover that you intentionally worked us a little too hard. I think. Okay. I can be a dick at times. That's for sure. <laughs> there are a few workouts where I just wish I never went. But. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it was your way of saying, hey, yeah, that's your fault. You knew you had this in the morning. <laughs> yeah. What were you doing going out last night and doing that to yourself? <laughs> yeah. You're not wrecking my workout. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was an interesting school. That was a school developed for us that every time someone new tried to get in, we tried to persuade them not to join <laughs> us <laughs> by beating the shit out of them. <laughs> um Good yeah. times, but yeah, isn't that interesting? Like, like we've become so adverse with um, competition. I think because we see competition adverse. Yeah. adverse. Uh, oh, adverse. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
basically because we only understand competition under um, under scarcity. Yeah. Um, yet competition or abundance is as as we we're just talking about is just fun. It, it creates that, uh, that betterment yeah. of everybody. Everyone yeah. rises. And that's that's the big piece, I think. Um, I, I think that's the big. That's the part that I think this whole podcast is about is finding that balance. So, we 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 live in in an era of abundance that yes. the largest percentage of our population perceives as a world of scarcity. Yes. And. So you live in a scattered, not really creative environment of hustle, 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 like it's a scarce world. But then when you do have time, there's almost too much time and a desire to enter, you know, think of Netflix and how many hours are spent watching Netflix and YouTube. Yeah. Where it's, uh, and I, I don't mean to knock YouTube in, in one respect that I've, I've used it to learn so many things. Yes. But how much of it is just used as pure entertainment where you're not doing, you're observing? Yeah, and I think that's a, that's an effort to calm our limbic system. I, then we can talk to that. calm ourselves. To, to calm ourselves, yeah. And then the way we calm, the mechanism in our brain that allows us to, to feel calm is the limbic system. But, and but here's the piece if you had a reason to find challenge, yes. And, um, you know, if you if you looked oh, for those things, yeah, yeah, no. That, uh, so our attempt, I say, it's an attempt to find regulation. Yeah. Um, however, I did uh, in order to regulate. Not an effective one. It's not an effective. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Better put. Um, regulation occurs in real life, in real time, with other living beings, uh, animals in particular, um, and that is, I believe, due to the fact that limbic system evolved with nature, in coordination to evolving a species away from individual survival uh, into community survival and greater opportunity for thrival yeah. um, so that nature continued to expand. There's only a limited um, uh, progression that nature could go without the development of emotions. Mm -hmm. And uh, reptilian being very cold and cold-blooded, they're cold emotionally because they don't have a limbic system. So I think the limbic system evolved um, as a cooperative um, organ to help ensure species thrival by working together. Yeah, you brought and in you brought in the self-regulation part, and I think yeah. that that that's a, that's an important part. I mean, I, I at our school, it's a school of choice. Yes. So students uh, have to choose to come to it. It's not. Um, and one of the key things I do in the interview to decide if a student can work in our school and do a good job or not is if they have some self-regulation skills. Yes. And so when I'm interviewing a, a kid and their parent and the parent says, well, yeah, I have to watch them and monitor their homework and check in with their teachers to make sure that, you know, everything's done and they're, they regularly hand things in late. Um, how are you going to move to a school where half your day is self-regulated? And still get everything done. Like it's well, just you know, and it's interesting because you, you, and again, it, it it just pops into mind the need that, that I have a need to, to describe or define yeah. regulation. So limbic regulation, which okay. I'm referring to, um, is about the brain's ability to bring um, our our nervous system and our hormones, the chemical reactions that occur in our body under stress, back to um, uh, a balanced. Um, uh, moving away from stress. Moving, not yeah. Moving us to to essentially is if you had uh, shaken up a, a, a vial of of various chemicals and it blended out, the solidifying 
effect of things calming back down, or the the, the slowing effect is the limbic regulation, where it goes back to its original state, yeah. and where it's prepared for action in the future, but it's not overtaxed, so it's gone back to its base level, where I'm, it's ready state. Um, the the fact is is that so an, an I, emulsion of like oil and water, you shake it, you've got oil and water yeah. bubbles, but it moving it wants to move back to the separation of the two. Yeah, and it's it's and it can it, be mixed again, but yeah, exactly. And to use a weak, you know that analogy would fall apart in a lot of different areas okay. under limbic regulation but um, I think um, it's limbic rela- regulation is is all those subtle cues that we get from each other on how our emotional state is so it could be our breathing our uh, body posture um, what we see what we smell in the form of pheromones we're getting all this information and it's a f- of from the other person it's being received by the limbic brain not by the neurocortex but as in, 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 in feeling tones, and that's a sense of empathy. And the weird thing about the limbic system is it doesn't regulate on its own too well. And it makes sense because it evolved to be a cooperation organ, organ to deal with um, opportunities for thrival, but also to deal with conditions of threat, uh, scarcity. And um, uh, so that regulate. I was going to ask you how specifically. How does how does the, that regulation um, differ in a world of scarcity versus abundance? Um, so under scarcity, um, I don't think the limbic system has a chance to regulate, and that's why I think it's um, it's only meant to be a temporary situation because. Um, under scarcity, it really isn't regulating. It is it is actually performing its duty. Um, at a hyper level under intense situations it's basically hell's bells approach to a terrible problem to save the genes of the species um, and therefore it breaks down no longer is the community um, the the most important thing um, as far as the community that's been created um, in the here and now what becomes important is the future community of the genes and so the genes now have a different strategy to ensure that the strongest and most uh, um, adaptable ones uh, go on and propagate. And hopefully that situation changes and things are more abundant. But if they aren't, then at least the best genes to survive are in this environment to continue on until eventually. S- so scarcity, threat- scarcity invites the uh, invites competition. competition. And naturally, that's why I think we get it wrong. Is that negative w- competition? Negative, to, ne- negative comp- uh, hyperized competition. Okay. Uh, and yeah, aggressive, yeah, aggressive life and death of aggressive competition, um, or at least a feeling of life and death competition. Mm-hmm. And. Um, so this is this is as I'm thinking about it. This is the problem with the model is that we live under a scarcity model, where we have hyper competition, uh, rigid structures of command, and our limbic systems always underdress as we try to raise to the challenge. Um, it never goes back to regulation, and uh, we end up with what we have today: anxiety, stress, despair, um, apathy, mm-hmm. um, aggression. Um, uh, it's an overall lack of cooperation, both within the family units. So the, uh, but, but you know, as the as the as the community expands out from the fam from the individual to the family, the whole thing's breaking down as the individual seeks to survive. So I don't think it's wrong. I don't think hyper competition is wrong. It's just meant to be applied under conditions of scarcity. I, I would apply it. it like so if things, if if the world falls apart, yeah. 
Um, I'm going to compete against my fellow man to help secure my future. At so, least I'm going to attempt to. So that that's interesting because I brought up the idea of entertainment and distraction. Yes. Um, and so if, if, we're, if you're trying to find that... Um, if you're trying to find that, uh, not residence, that equilibrium, that's the word I was looking for. Mm-hmm. You're trying to find that equilibrium uh, and, it, and you feel like it's a scarce world. What do you do? You try to find ways to escape that. Mm. And that's where you're, t- you know, the attention with Netflix and so on. But it could also be, well, normally in a time of scarcity, what do you try to do? You try to get all the food you can. Yes. You try to hold on. Um, you, you know, um, your desire for uh, food as a mechanism, just, just for, you know, because in, if you look back a few hundred years, if, if it was a time of scarcity, then that, your next meal was a concern and it couldn't be a day or two before you saw the next one. That could be an underlying challenge of, of the obesity problem that we see. Could be. I think it may contribute to it. I think that like there's a lot of contributing factors to it. And um, but one of the things that um, that and an abundance of sugar. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? Um, the um, uh, y- the breakdown under scarcity to this hyperized competition um, for humans is all in our head. It's not really real. Like bills, yeah. money, everything's as as we think it's real. But uh, you know, if you study to you look at the 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 concept of money is illusionary. It doesn't is an exchange of energy that's not proportionate anymore. It's just, it's a strange thing. It's something that we invented. Most of the things that we fear and all the wolves, the mental wolves we run them from, are essentially imaginary. They've been invented by us. We take them for real, but they act as pressure on our brains. And the limbic system doesn't have a, it's not a language system it's a tone emotional tone system that communicates through so all it feels from the limbic system which is an outside environment to it in a certain extent is pressure mm-hmm. and so it just feels that you know like real wolves are chasing this the, the idea of mental wolves chasing us all day and real wolves chasing it the limbic system is identical and so how do we how do we enter in limbic regulation uh, well, we're deregulated, absolutely. One way is with horses, we talk about that. Um, but um, definitely we need each other. We have to, just like you and I talked about, is that, you know, we do better if we're together. You know, like we just, we regulate. We have a conversation, we hang out, we have a coffee or a beer, and then we leave and we feel better. We just enjoy them. And we say, oh, I just really enjoy my friend Dave. Well, part of the reason I really enjoy my friend Dave is the fact that we resonate together and therefore we regulate together and occasionally we revise each other. Yeah. And that means like you're not, I'm not feeling well and I come see you. Um, you ask me how I'm doing and I, I, you know, I give you an honest answer and we start to resonate. You start to feel, oh, I, you know, Jack's, I literally have a sense of how Jack's feeling. And then you go, well, Jack, and then you have a conversation. And if the conversation isn't about curing me or correcting me in my false belief system, but if you just sit there and share the experience with me, my, that act of just the movement of emotions back and forth, and I'm not sure how this works, but it definitely takes this movement of sharing, this empathy exchange that goes back and forth through pheromones, 
through our sights, all our senses, that you know we know through mirror neurons, you're actually getting some accurate description of my internal environment because through mirror neurons, you're mapping out the same state as I'm having. That's why you can feel it, is you've mapped it out. And so um, we exchange feelings and we don't even have to talk about a solution. I may not even leave the situation with a solution to my problem, but through the con uh, uh, Actually, active yeah. listening mm -hmm. um, and honest communication, the limbic system and showing up for each other, the limbic system regulates through the process of sharing tones of emotion back and forth. And I'm not sure we do enough of that. I don't think we do any. We don't have community anymore. Yeah. We don't. Like, I, I posted just for fun. I said, you know, like, if you measure success on how many people would die for you, how successful would you be? Yeah. You know, and really that wasn't to say, you know, literally how many people are going to die for you. But um, I think in successful communities under abundance, you know, you think of an indigenous tribe. Some of the tribe comes down and beats one of the members of the tribe over the head. Guess what? The whole tribe is responding. The entire tribe. Yeah, if one gets sick, the entire tribe responds yeah. is because they're interconnected and they're acting almost as a super organism where no individual is in isolation. Yeah. But look at, so they have communities. Look at our lives. And that's, that's where we feel isolated. So a, our limbic systems can't That's a rich and regulate. abundant community. Yeah. 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 Well, you look at indigenous people and they say, like, I just was listening to a neuroscience program. Uh, I think it was Richard, Daw Richard Dawkins may have been talking about it, but, um, it, you know, they, they know now. They've done enough research. We're sophisticated in our measurement tools that hunter-gatherer tribes, we're not, ha we're not happier than they are. Yeah. You know, we're significantly less happy than people who live in loincloth <laughs> and, you know, naked most of the time and, and, and have nothing but tools and, and, and and uh, things that they've created themselves, mm. uh, poverty in our point of view, but they're happier than we are. Just like when we go to the third world and it was like, why are third world people so much happier? So they have a sense of community because in the third world, the scarcity factor has caused the, the uh, family units to bond tightly because they can't survive without each other. And, and therefore you have community and you have happier people because they have a regulated limbic system despite their stress. So I think that community can rise to the challenge of of stress if it has a tight social network if it doesn't which, it'll just drop and fall apart which a herd does which i think might be the draw that you see in, yeah. in having connections to yeah to and that's and, and that's just talking about the uh, you know um resonance and regulation there's a revision component to our understanding of the limbic system that means that there's an overriding process um but the limbic system um if you're a coder um, the neurocortex is high speed, uh, and you can make changes on the fly. Uh, the limbic system is, requires uh, a long time to upload anything new or make any type of revisions because it's kind of set a childhood. Is it the and it's yeah, <laughs> expected to run normally the rest of the life. Unfortunately, yeah. for most of us in childhood, we just never get that imprint laid down properly because of our parents are living in scarcity. And therefore, they're responding in ways that even at a very young age, the, air, the child quickly learns that 
this is a scarce environment. And I think that's why we're seeing an epidemic of anxiety, or possibly one of the reasons we're seeing an epidemic of anxiety and depression in, in children is that they're getting it from their environment, from the parents, is that the parent is saying, hurry up, hurry up, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. <laughs> Along with a bunch of other stuff, he's, he, she is definitely going to feel that things are scarce. There's not enough. And that's, in, in an early age, um, I would think that would drive the child and, and any one of us into isolation. Hmm. Right? It's because that we, you know, children, I, I think maybe there should be a sense of, it should be protected hmm. from the world. There's too much pressure out there. Yeah. And, 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 and the lack of community extends even to, like I'm thinking about kids and putting them in sports and so on. Uh, even though the even though students uh, students even though kids are say on a soccer team and a uh, and a basketball team or different things like that, um, oftentimes they get driven to the practice. <laughs> they do the practice. They leave. Their sense of community is just during the coaching time. Yeah. A- and so that's not a true community. Uh, even that team itself, right? So you know the martial arts where they don't get to push themselves to a, a true experience and they're somewhat entertained and then leave. That's not, that's not getting the, the built sort of community of, um, uh, of peers. And yeah. It's, it's, it's community that's lacking some of the foundations of community. And I think that would be worth exploring perhaps in another podcast. We're um, just about to run out of time. Yeah. Um, well, do you know what I'm, th- I'm thinking? Uh, what we need to do is we need to... Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the limbic system, but I think we got to sit and really kind of yeah. chunk that into some pieces. And well, I, th- I think it's really good that you, you, you brought up uh, abundancy. And so the comp- the you know wrapping up our, our conversation around abundancy, and maybe we've questioned a, 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 a few things about what competition may look like in abundant... Um, environments versus scarce environments and uh, you know how do we move to some type of um, regulation or emotional stability in 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 our our communities some balance around what does good competition look like and how do we you know outside of every couple years watching the winter or summer Olympics you know what what do we actually do to make competition something that makes people in our own communities actually thrive yeah yeah i think it's a it's an interesting um area a topic of conversation and uh hopefully we can explore this a little bit further next time and um and and, and until next time um this is jack Ashu from mountain horse studios um and dave truss from inquiry hub uh, if you'd like to find more information about dave um you can reach him at where where can people reach you davidtrust.com davidtrust.com there you go and uh, until next time this is Mountain Horse Studios and thanks for joining us bye for now thank you thanks Dave this is Mountain Horse Studios